Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness and sore throats like today, but none of what we talk about replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Now today we're not talking about the throat or the voice. We're talking about the joints. We're joined today by Dr. Byron Izuka. He is a pediatric orthopedic specialist and he has been in practice over a decade and a half. And we're going to be talking about what are some of the common injuries and types of problems that kids can get that can sometimes result in surgery. And luckily, sometimes they don't need surgery at all. So today we're going to talk about some of these issues and really discuss what are common orthopedic conditions and why is it different treating kids than it is treating adults. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Byron. Thank you very much, Kathy. I'm happy to be here. Now, your voice is a bit better than mine today, I must tell you. <laughs> but what are the most common things? You know, we talk about, I see adults all the time. I see adults, they injure themselves. Maybe they went playing golf over the weekend, twisted a knee. Maybe they're weekend warriors, play basketball, do all their running on the weekends. When we get older, we can't do as well with our joints as we used to when we were younger. What are some of the most common injuries that you see that kids develop? So kids' injuries kind of come in two flavors. They're sort of the sports injuries, so it's a result of participation in specific sporting activity, and then what we just think of as accidents, your falls, your trips, and things that were uh, really unexpected and not part of specific uh, sports. So let's talk about accidents first. Accidents happen. You don't expect it. People fall down, injure themselves, break an arm, break a leg. What sort of accidental injuries do you see kids becoming susceptible to? So anything that you can fall off is fair game. Uh, You know, I sort of joke that if it weren't for the monkey bars, it would be half my business gone. So any kind of playground equipment, you know, monkey bars, swings, slides, you name it. If a kid can climb up off of it and fall off of it, it's going to happen. And then, you know, anything with wheels. So bicycles, skateboards, Healy shoes, which have come into and out of fashion, kind of back in fashion now. All those crazy waveboards, skateboards that you see out there, all of these things are fair game for a kid to have a bad enough fall to break something. So let's talk about wrists. If you have, you know, you're growing as a kid, so you could have a potential problem with a fracture and you're still in the process of getting taller, growing into adulthood. Do you have to treat wrist fractures, for example, the same way in kids as you would in adults? That's a good question, and actually it depends on the type of break. So kids are different because they're growing, and part of the thing that makes them different is they, they have what's called physes or growth plates. So those are the part of the bones that are growing. And when you get an injury that involves a growth plate, it's entirely different than in an adult. So in kids with growth plate injuries, we're worried not about just getting the bone to heal, but whether or not that bone, after it's done healing, will continue to grow in the future. So that's one challenge uh, with kids. On the other hand, kids do tend to heal better than adults. So you've got one situation with a growth plate injury where there's something we have to worry about in the future. But on the other hand, there are some bad injuries that can occur in kids, especially wrist fractures, by far the most common fracture that kids get, where we can actually be a lot less aggressive than we used to be. So maybe they don't need surgery. They could wear a cast. They could try to avoid re-injuring it. Exactly. Um, There are times where there are bad injuries that we will still treat non-operatively, but that same exact fracture in an older child, like an adolescent or an adult, would almost always get surgery. And sometimes if the breaks are mild enough, we can actually treat a lot of these with just a brace and not even a cast. 
So wrist injuries, depending on how it's done, can be handled differently. Do people often fracture their elbow? Do kids, I can just picture falling down, hurting your wrist, hurting your elbow. Is that another location where you can potentially conservatively manage? Yes, absolutely. So after the wrist, the elbow is the most fractured area of the body. Uh, There's a special fracture called the supracondylar fracture, which is basically a break in the bottom part of the upper arm bone, so right near the elbow, so we consider it an elbow fracture. That fracture, unfortunately, has the probably the highest need for surgery in terms of kids. But even with those type of fractures, there are a lot of fractures around the elbow that can be treated conservatively that in adults would need surgery. When you have situations where kids are in casts or kids are in some type of immobilizer, how important is it for them to keep it on for that full duration. You know, I remember kids in class when I was younger, they had to wear casts for like months at a time. Is it that important to immobilize to that extent for such a long duration of time? Or are there newer techniques where you can monitor it, do subsequent x-rays, maybe take off the cast sooner, maybe do some modification? Can we Have we changed that at all in the last 20 years? Yeah, so I think, you know, when I when I hear, like, parents saying that they had broke their arm when they were a kid and they were in a cast for the elbow fracture for three months, I'm not sure if they're kind of remembering it worse than it really was or if they really were in a cast for three months. But I would say in today's medicine, a three-month cast is probably on the long end of things. So it, it does happen, but it's exceedingly rare. Having said that, uh, with newer knowledge, more aggressive techniques, we are able to do exactly what you said. Maybe treat something in a brace that once was treated in a cast and get them at least out of the cast faster. Because one of the great things about a cast is that it protects you well, um, but it does cause a lot of side effects, stiffness, joint weakness, those type of things. When kids are in a situation where they injure themselves, go to the emergency room, often I'll see that they have some type of like a molded plaster kind of, it's not a cast, it's sort of a brace. It doesn't look like it's sturdy enough to be able to hold on to the whole time or be something they wear a long time. How important after someone goes to the emergency room, should they see an orthopedist to have an official cast? Is there, like we know suturing you have to do within the first 24 hours or else doing it again isn't going to make much of a difference. Is there a similar time with casting? Is it ever too late to do that? certainly is uh, can be too late. A lot of that has to do with the severity of the fracture and the type of fracture because these are things that uh, drive the orthopedist in terms of how soon I want to get the cast on. So if someone's got a mild break, uh, let's say a, a, what we call buccal fracture of the distal radius, so that's a wrist fracture that's very, very mild, one that I would classically treat with just a brace, that one obviously doesn't need to see me the next day after being in the emergency room, whereas uh, a very unstable fracture uh, that may lose its reduction, in other words, they may have straightened it in the emergency room, well, I'd probably want to see that one sooner rather than later because let's say they straighten it and you don't come to see me for a week and a half, the fracture may have fallen apart by then and you know now we've got to do something else. So there's no one good answer for that, but in general, the worse the break, the sooner we should see them. The less severe, the more time there is before you need to go rushing into the specialist. And often the emergency room could probably tell you that. They can, and and, and, and no uh, uh, dismay to my ER colleagues, but there are some fractures that are deceptively worse than they appear to be. So there are some fractures that may seem like they're not that big of a deal, 
uh, but we know from orthopedic experience that these are things that we should see sooner rather than later, as well as some other injuries. So the tough part is, you know, unless you really have a deep knowledge of what type of things really need to be seen sooner rather than later, you're probably safer going with the default of go see the orthopedist as soon as possible. Now that has problems because there are things that can wait and don't need to be seen and maybe someone else would be better served with that appointment. Uh, but it, but it's tough. I don't expect emergency room physicians to be orthopedists. Yeah, I would be one of the ones that would be like, go see the orthopedic doctor as soon as you can. Now, if you ever have an open fracture where the bone is exposed, obviously that's a serious situation. We're talking more about the closed types of fractures where you can't see it, but you can certainly feel it. And you could potentially wait a few days depending on what type of fracture. So someone like you could look at the x-rays sent by the emergency room and could probably identify, hey, get them in today, get them in in three days. Yes, absolutely. And, and that's the nice uh, thing about technology. Technology as it advances doesn't always make my life easier. Or I think yours always easier. But one area where I think technology has really helped me and my emergency room colleagues communicate is in the ability to send the pictures to my phone. Whereas in the past, you know, it was over a telephone. We didn't have computer access to these images. And it was a little bit of me trying to read their mind. Now that we can get the x-rays directly sent to us, it's a lot easier for me to say yes. Just put that in a splint. No big deal. We can see them next week on Monday. You don't have to do anything else or something where I may be like, well, no, actually, go ahead and splint them, but they need to see me tomorrow. So that, that really helps. I think given that information, you should get a free pass to use your phone no matter where you are. If you ever get pulled over using your phone, yes, I'm looking at x-rays, you should get some kind of special dispensation for that. So let's talk about the accidents. We talked a little bit about upper extremity, wrist and elbow. Do you see a lot of situations, particularly here in the islands, with neck injuries? Because I sometimes wonder... You know, Sandy Beach is out there. There's other places where it's kind of notorious for bodyboarders to have neck injuries. Are those also things where potentially people can have serious problems like fractures? Yes, absolutely. You know, uh, uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Spencer Chang, who's actually over at Straub, did a great study many years ago when he was still in training, documenting the fact that we have unique shore breaks here in Hawaii. And as such, you know, it's bad enough when you're not a good enough swimmer to begin with and you go in somewhere where even a good swimmer is at great risk for injury. So we do definitely do have a higher risk rate. Fortunately, unfortunately, it tends to occur more in the adult population and, in, and not so much in the five-year-old, um, probably because a five-year-old is just not out there putting themselves at risk. It's a 25-year-old um, visitor from the mainland here, you know, usually for their honeymoon that sees the big waves, wants to go out there and see what it's like and has no idea what he or she's getting into. Well, I guess it's good news that I'm not ever thinking I can go uh, out in the bodyboarding world, I'll tell you. Now, what about lower legs, you know, ankles, toes, knees? Do we see the same kinds of rates of injuries? I know wrist is the most common. Do you see a lot of ankle fractures in kids these days? We do. And there's, a, you know, there's, there, again, the difference between kids and adults is they get different types of injuries as well. So a classic example of that is what we call a toddler's fracture. And it's called that because it occurs in kids who are typically around five, six, seven years of age, what we would consider a toddler. And it's a very benign injury of the shin bone where they will just twist their leg slightly and they'll get what we call spiral fractures, a sort of twisting fracture of the shin bone. It's typically very mild when you see it on x-ray. Sometimes it's hard to see, kind of what we would call a hairline fracture. But it's, but it's a broken bone nonetheless. And the parents are almost always shocked that the bone is broken because they'll be like, but 
This kid's taking falls down the stairs off of the, the, the dining room chandelier. And, and he was just dancing in front of the TV when this happened. And it's, so it's sort of amazing sometimes how tough these kids are and they can bounce off of their uh, uh, walls and be fine. But they take a little twisting and injury and all of a sudden they're in my office with a broken shin. And how would that be treated? So that typically would treat it be with a cast because there are very mild injuries. Fortunately, there are two bones in the shin. So the big one breaks, but often the smaller one doesn't. So this special fracture, this toddler's fracture, is a, is a situation where the big bone has broken, which is not good, but the smaller bone fortunately hasn't. So there's some inherent internal stability to this injury. So these almost, almost always get treated non-operatively. What would be the type of accidental injury <clears throat> whether it be upper or lower body, where it absolutely would result in surgery. So this particular shin injury may not. Are there other types of accidental orthopedic issues that would absolutely result in a surgery? Sure. So the, these tend to be the more severe injuries. So classic ones, again, getting back to that supracondylar fracture, which is that break in the lower part of the upper arm bone. They come in three categories, types 1, 2, and 3. Types 1 never need surgery. Type 3s, which are the badly displaced fractures, that is the bone has broken and shifted a lot. Type 3s always need surgery. And then type 2s are the hard ones because they sometimes need surgery, sometimes they don't. So they're tough because there's a decision to be made. And you've got to talk to the parents, go over the options, and, and it basically comes down to are you willing to accept the pros and cons of casting it because there's always good and bad things, or are you willing to accept the pros and cons of surgery? Again, always good and bad with that. And so those tend to be the tough conversations because there's a decision to be made. Type 1s, type 3s, no decision. We're either going to cast it or we're either going to go to surgery. So either do it do it right the first time and uh, really fracture that or don't <laughs> barely fracture it at all. Decision is easy. Sort of, yeah. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Byron Izuka. We're talking about pediatric orthopedic issues. We talked about accidents. When we come back, we're going to talk about sports injuries that are common in kids and what can be done not just to prevent them, but also to treat them most effectively when they happen. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting, Sacred Hearts Academy, and Urgent Care Hawaii. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Byron Izuka. He is the only remaining private practice pediatric orthopedic specialist here on the islands. He has held out and continues to run his own show so that he can do it the way he wants to and make sure that he can provide the best care possible, which everybody really wants to do all the time. Absolutely. You've just got a unique circumstance where you run your own show. Yes, and it's, it's, it's got its good and bad. As, As with know. everything, yes. I'm glad you do because you can come here and be on our show. True. Now, we were talking about accidental issues with kids. You mentioned the other big area of injuries would be sports injuries. Yes. What types of sports do you see tend to result in the most injuries in your practice? Well, I think it, it comes down to, you know, the risk associated with the sports. So the collision or contact sports probably have the highest rate. So guys are thinking about things like Football, soccer, some of the martial arts uh, type of activities. Uh, for girls, soccer's a big one, and girls 
uh, tend to have more what we call non-contact injuries. And that's especially true in the areas where we're talking about soft tissue injuries, so injuries to muscles, ligaments, cartilage, those type of things, and less so broken bones. Broken bones can occur at any age for any reason. You just take a bad enough hit or a bad enough fall, you'll break an arm, you'll break a leg. But it's in the soft tissue injuries that we've really seen a change over the last 10, maybe 15 years. Now, with those sorts of soft tissue or ligamental injuries, is the same thing true? Kids heal faster, they tend to get better, they might be able to accommodate, and now we're dealing with ligaments and other types of injuries. Do those heal better in kids as opposed to adults? Yeah, I would say, you know, short of the severe injuries, that that, that, um, generalization still holds true, that in general, the equivalent injury in a child will heal better, do better, and turn out better than in an adult in general. Now, if you've got severe injuries, so situations where, like, a ligament's completely torn, um, they may need to undergo surgery, just like an adult does. But again, from that point, in general, the kids tend to recover and heal better and do better in their rehab than adults do. So in general, it's good to be young. That's what I always tell my patients when, when they do well. I tell the parents, oh, good to be young. Yeah, that, that I wish I could get younger. So let's talk about common injuries with girls, then we'll talk about boys. So you mentioned soccer for girls. I would imagine we'd be dealing with lower leg, maybe knee injuries, that twisting torsion on the force on the knees that could potentially cause a problem. What are the common ligament injuries, and how do you know that's what it is versus something more serious? Yeah, so soccer is a big one for boys and girls. You know, the most common Injury in sports and overall is just, you know, a sprained ankle, a twisted ankle. So we've all had a twisted ankle from sports, not from sports. In particular for girls and, and in soccer in particular, there's been a real exponential increase in the number of knee injuries that they get, primarily of the ligaments. And the one we're really worried about is what's called the ACL or the anterior cruciate ligament. And the reason is because this injury, when you tear this ligament, it almost always results in the need for surgery. There are other ligaments around the knee, something like the MCL, medial collateral ligament, even with a complete tear, often will heal without surgery, so we're a little bit less worried about that. The PCL, which is the cousin of the ACL, the posterior cruciate ligament, again, a complete tear of that ligament most of the time does fine with rehab and a conservative approach without surgery. But it's that ACL. It's not an ACL. ACL is a different beast. The ACL, you've got to do something about it. You're almost always looking at surgery, especially at that young age, because most of the time the kids want to go back to the exact activity that they tore their ACL in, soccer or whatever it was. What about meniscal tears? Increasingly more common in young kids, too. Um, and, And so overall, that's, you know, the trend that we're seeing, Hawaii and nationwide, is this phenomenon where the frequency and the severity of these injuries is increasing, and they're both occurring in younger and younger patients. So the type of things that I saw when I started practice, you know, over a decade and a half ago, is nothing compared to what I'm seeing now. I'm seeing things today that I never saw 15, 16 or years ago. Why do you think that is? There, you know, there, we, we talk about this a lot, and I think there's consensus that a lot of it has to do with a number of things. Number one, The level of competition is probably truly higher. Kids are playing harder. They're playing better now than they are. And the consequence of that, of course, is more injury and more severe injury. But there are also other things that have not so much just do with the elevation of the sport itself. But kids are also playing the same sport year-round, which is definitely a big contributor to this increasing epidemic of more frequent, more severe that we're seeing. So when I was a kid many, many years ago, 
you know, I played sports, but, you know, you could play baseball once a year. You know, you played for three months, and when it was done, you had to go find something else to do because baseball wasn't coming back for nine more months. You can now play baseball yearly, year-round here, as you can soccer, as you can tennis, and even football, which was like the last bastion of seasonal sports. You can now play football in Hawaii literally 12 months a year. And what we're finding is that this constant we refer to it as subspecialization of the of the pediatric patient, but they're, they're doing this single sport, this repetitive activity, literally 12 months out of the year. At some point, their body just breaks down. And so when that happens, we talked about the knee injuries, ACL, probably needs a surgery. The other types of knee injuries might be able to manage conservatively if you can stop the activity that caused it. Exactly. Which is really the key. Convincing parents, no, we can't have your child play this sport because it could make them worse. Yeah, and that's, you know, one of oftentimes the toughest conversation I have with my patients. I mean, sometimes that conversation is tougher even than the one where I'm having to give the bad news to a parent that their child has a condition that needs surgery. I mean, that's a tough conversation. But trying to convince a parent that their kid just needs a rest from sports and that if they just stopped playing, that would go a long way towards fixing the problem. Very tough. And that that's a societal pressure. That's that's a, a social issue, not a medical issue, but it's one we have to deal with in the office because it is definitely contributing to the problem. So girls and boys both can have soccer problems. What about boys? Do they generally have more troubles? I seem to think you mentioned collision sports, football. Yeah. So, you know, guys, I think because there is still this disparity in sports, I mean, there aren't many girls playing football, so we're just never going to have a lot of female football injuries. So football is still king in the in sense in the sense that that's probably the sport that's still there are the most participants, and 99.9% of them are guys. So because of that, guys are always going to kind of have a, a leg up, if you will, in that injury department. So anything from broken bones to torn ligaments to concussions, which, uh, as you know, is a, a very hot topic nowadays, the guys will always kind of have those tally marks on their side just because it is, quote-unquote, a guy sport. And are there any particular injuries that happen predominantly in football that do require surgery and those that don't? Not anything specific. I just think in football you kind of get a little bit of everything, though. You get shoulder injuries, knee injuries, ankle injuries, arm injuries that all, if bad enough, could require surgery. So football is definitely dangerous. I mean, I don't want to overstate football because I played football. I love it. I I, I don't have a son, but if I did, I think I would let him play football. But it is probably by far the most dangerous of the sports when you break it down by severity of injury, things that would need surgery, assuming things that don't need surgery are quote-unquote minor. And then, of course, for the catastrophic injuries, so like head neck, spinal cord injuries. I mean, football always comes out on top. And again, maybe the numbers of injuries, like you said, there's a lot of athletes that play, and now they have that 12 months out of the year potential. So we do have concerns about that. Now, if you're a parent and your child has an injury, either playing sports or even as an accident, what is the first thing that you should do? If you witness your child either falling or, you know, falling down in the middle of a sports game or falling from a height, what should parents do as sort of general first aid for pediatric orthopedic stuff? So the first thing that I would advise folks to do, and it's it's tough because I don't want to provide training for parents per se over the phone, uh, but it's the same thing that I do like when I'm on the sideline watching a team. 
the first thing we do when we go out there, whether it's the trainers or myself, we first make sure it's not the serious stuff. So it's not a head injury, it's not a neck injury, it's not a spinal injury, and that the patient's breathing. And it, it may sound kind of funny, but you don't have to worry about that arm that's crooked or maybe a bone sticking out and bleeding if the kid's unconscious. Gotcha. Airway, breathing, circulation. Yes. Beginnings of, of basic first aid. Yes. So if they have an airway, they're breathing, they have good pulses, they seem to be okay, they might have an injury. Do you put ice on it? Do you put heat on it? How do parents know this goes to the ER? Hey, this isn't bad. Maybe we can take him to his regular doctor or the orthopedist tomorrow. Are there key features that are common with different types of injuries? Yeah, so that's a great question. I get that one asked all the time. You know, patients will come in, we'll go through an injury, and we're at the conclusion, and, you know, parents are like, you know, so the next time, how do I know it was broken? Because maybe they waited a day or two before they found out it was broken, and then when they do, like most parents, they feel guilty because the parents will say, well, you know, I was just telling my kid, you know, suck it up and be tough, and then we found out it was broken, and we felt horrible. I mean, that happens all the time. And, and it's tough, but in general, I tell parents uh, there are a few things, you know, assuming it's not an obviously bad injury, it's, it's one where you're not sure. If the ca- child can't walk initially, that's okay. But if they can't walk after several hours, and certainly if they're not walking by the next day, that's a go get it checked out, get an x-ray, because that's not normal. And I, and I remind our parents that their kids fall down, bump into walls, crash into other kids, you know, 30 times a day. You don't see any of those. You may see the one time that they fall and stay on the ground, but there were 30 other times that they didn't. So you have to understand that when something isn't right, they don't bounce back, and kids usually do. You got to be worried. Same thing with the upper extremities. They hurt their arm, fine. They won't use it for a little while. But after a few hours, and certainly by the next day, they're still nursing that arm. You may not want to take too much of a hard line and go and take them in and see. Now, do you give them Tylenol, ibuprofen? Do you give any kind of pain reliever to kids knowing that if they don't feel the pain, they might have a tendency to re-injure it or do something to it that could make it worse? Yeah. So, you know, it, it sort of touches on a, a, another subject that's near and dear to my heart is, you know, appropriate pain control in kids and the whole opioid epidemic that we're facing. So I have no problem with ice packs because they help relieve pain. They make kids feel better just from the mental aspect of you doing something. And they are effective for swelling and pain relief. So it does have a therapeutic effect. And and as long as you don't over ice, which you can do, I think that's fine. I do worry about the masking effect of medications, even something as mild as over-the-counter ibuprofen. There have been many studies done showing that ibuprofen is every bit as strong and effective or even more so than Tylenol with codeine. And that's a narcotic medication that you need to prescribe. So, you know, I think we sometimes think that, you know, if you can buy it at Long's Drugs, it's not that strong. And if my doctor gave it to me, it must be potent. And in general, that's true. But there are some things you can buy over the counter that are quite strong. And in certain circumstances, like you alluded to, hiding the pain is not that good of an idea. So if you had to choose maybe regular Tylenol as opposed to ibuprofen just to relieve the pain but not mask it so much and... You know, when kids have injuries, there's this debate, ice versus heat. Ice is a good anti-inflammatory, reduces swelling. Heat brings blood flow to the area, sometimes might make it swell a little more. I usually tell people ice for the first 24 hours, and after that, if you still have discomfort, maybe try heat. But is there any benefit to one versus the other? I think it's it, it's difficult to give a time limit to these things because certainly what you just said is entirely appropriate for a very mild injury. 
Uh, I would say in general, what I usually tell my patients when asked that is you ice it until the pain and swelling are gone. Now, of course, you shouldn't be icing an injury for two weeks before you finally <laughs> go, well, the pain and swelling haven't gone away for two weeks. Let's go see someone. But certainly, I tend to encourage ice until pain and swelling are gone. And then after that, if you have problems with stiffness or residual discomfort, certainly warm therapy is indicated. And the warm actually, again, don't use it for three or four weeks. If you think there's something serious going on, we've got a problem. Exactly. All right. Well, I want to thank you for sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. We're going to have to have you back on and talk some more about orthopedic issues and how to stay safe. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on the HPR app and hear this show again. Our engineer is David Chong, and I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We will see you next week. We're going to talk some more about various different health topics. But remember, what we talk about never actually replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Happy to have you listening. We'll be here next week, Monday at 630.